Well, chapters 4 through 7 focused upon the nourishing work of Christ. And it reminded us symbolically when we think of the tabernacle of the showbread and the chalices. And so in chapter 4, there was the Samaritan woman and the idea of the water of life. In chapters 5 and 6 and 7, we see returning and magnifying of those things. We have the, the bread from heaven discussion. And we also have the idea of, uh, again, Jesus being the water of life in seven. So it closes out there with that nourishing. So um, that idea, we are moving further into the tabernacle now. And the part that we're entering into is to consider the idea of what is often called the menorah or the lampstand. And so Christ as the lampstand. And so we're seeing him as the light of the world. Now, as we consider that lampstand, the theme of the lampstand is, or the candlestick, is going to continue in John chapter 8 all the way through chapter 9. Um, and so we will then, in chapter 10, be moving on to thinking of Christ as the mediator, in other words, the priest that offers the sacrifices. And so Christ as the lampstand is the emphasis here. Um, the idea of the lampstand... First, I want to give you a sense that in Exodus chapter 25 and chapter 37, you have the making of the lampstand and the description of it. Um, and the lampstand is a, a symbol of the tree of life. Uh, it, it has this, uh, it, it looks like a plant. It is designed to look like a plant. And the idea that where the buds are is where the light is. So imagine a tree that is a tree where, where you would have fruit or light, or sorry, where you have fruit or flowers that there's light coming from it, okay? And that is sort of the, the symbolism of, of the lampstand. And so what we find also is the lampstand in the Old Covenant is an excellent symbol for the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant had a national church that was consolidated and when you hear that, you think, oh, yeah, in the New Covenant, we don't have national churches. We just have freedom of religion and pluralism. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there was a national church that was only national. It was only in Israel. And now there is an international church, and every church ought to be supported in the sense of recognized by the magistracy. So there ought to be an establishment, a recognition of the true church by the civil sphere. So I'm not trying to say national church as opposed to a disestablishment. Uh, what I'm trying to say is there was a national, local, or you might say a, a parochial, it's localized church, as opposed to international or Catholic or universal. So in the New Covenant, it goes out to all the nations. All the nations are brought in to the church. Now, the lampstand symbolizes this in an interesting way. In the Old Covenant, the lampstand had multiple branches coming off of one stand. In the New Covenant, when you have, for example, in the book of Revelation, the symbolism of the church as the temple, you see every church having one lampstand with one lamp on it. And so this idea that the church is the temple of God and there's lampstands that get scattered all throughout the world so that every church has a lampstand. And the danger is if a church apostatizes, if a church has bad doctrine or has bad worship or bad government that the Lord threatens 
if you don't repent, he will take away the lampstand, which means that the preaching of the gospel, the true word of God, will be taken away. And so that lampstand theme, I want you to understand, and those are all things that are emphasized here. So Christ talks about himself as the light here. So we have this, this lampstand idea. Now, we start out the chapter, and we deal with this woman who's in adultery. And there's an effort in the history of the church to remove this text from Scripture. Augustine says, in his day, men cut it out of their copies of John because they were worried that their wives would think they could commit adultery without consequence. Um, J.C. Ryle talks about that and the tendency for that to occur in the early church. And Rush Dooney has a, in his commentary on John, he lists out the, the ways in which the churches sought to deal with adultery in terms of canon law and how uh, you find, for example, in uh, Cyprian's canons, he said that a person who uh, committed adultery had to be in penance and not return to the Lord's table for five years and repeat offense added ten years. Okay, so this was the various ways that men invented things to deal with stuff. And that is not what should be done. And cutting out portions of scripture that we, are, we find problematic is not what should be done. The majority text has this in the scripture. Some, some, some of the critical texts remove this. And the received text has this. Okay, so the majority text is what I have written here. And so people will cast doubt on this. They'll say the oldest manuscripts don't have it. They would ever, it's blasphemy. This is the word of God. This is the word of God. You should not cut it out. And what it is, is just as the apostle Paul, as a murderer, could be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and made an apostle, a woman can commit adultery and be restored to Membership in the church can be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, on the other side, sometimes people also take this passage and try to say, this proves that all of the commandments given to the civil magistrate for the punishment of crimes in the Old Testament were ended by Christ. And that actually they're somehow bad or legalistic. As though the commandments from Moses were evil. Though they came from the lips of God. That's also blasphemy. People rarely deal with this text well. And so what I want to do is to walk through this and to help you to understand some of the pitfalls and to also understand some of uh, the important insights to draw out. So pitfalls to avoid, insights to draw out. And I want you to have confidence that this is the word of God. This is the word of God. This does not create a systematic problem, and it is in the majority text. So let's walk through it. Okay, so verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Okay, remember there was a, there was a discussion uh, before, and what had happened is everybody kind of gone to their homes, and Jesus leaves them, and he goes to the Mount of Olives. So he had been... Uh, Remember, he enters in in the middle of the, the Feast of Tabernacles. He comes in, and he is arguing for his own authority. Um, and he talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he deals with the unbelief of the leaders there. And there's this kind of end to it. And so they then are trying to 
they're trying to now counterattack, right? Jesus ambushes them in their midst, comes in and raises a bunch of problems for them, and now they're trying to set up a counterattack to go after Jesus to try to make him look bad. So Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now very early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Uh, the sitting down and teaching is a common thing uh, in the Old Testament, and it's one of the things I want, I want to draw that symbolism, the idea of the prophet sitting down and teaching. So the idea first, he's expecting to teach for a while. Right? If I ever walk in here and I sit down, that's when you groan. Then, in addition to that, the idea is there's a seat of authority. There's a throne. So, there's a throne for Christ as a prophet. And when he was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father and sat down at his right hand, he's enthroned as a prophet, the authoritative prophet. He is the prophet. He finishes his work as a high priest in sacrifice and sits down because there's no more sacrifices. And he prays and mediates from there. And... As a king, he is enthroned, and so he rules there at the right hand of the Father. So sitting down as a prophet, I want you, when you think about him sitting down to teach, I want you to remember his triple office of prophet, priest, king, and that he's sitting down to teach is a part of his idea of the seat of authority. Now, Verse 3, then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, we found this woman in adultery. Now the majority text has we, and it's important because this makes the trap harder. Okay, The, 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 the other texts will say, the, the TR says this woman was caught, or the, the critical text will say uh, this woman has been caught. That's, of course, the critical text that actually have this, whereas other ones don't even have this section. Right? The, the, you can see how the critical text contradicts itself, by the way. It's a mess. Critical text is a joke. It's a self-contradictory bundle of nonsense and efforts to build the Bible off of the critical text. A few manuscripts that contradict themselves more than others is a liberal effort to undermine our trust in the Bible, and it's a Romanist effort to make us need a priest, a clergy, a kleros, a pope to give us the Bible, because who can know? Who can know what's even in the Bible? Right? This, is, this is a makes the scriptures a plaything of the academics and the priestcraft. And so the majority text spares us from that, and the majority text increases here the difficulty for Jesus. Okay, the majority text says we found her. Why does that matter? If she was just caught and Jesus is asked to judge, okay, that doesn't, that doesn't really work because he would go, well, were you witnesses? But if they say, we're the witnesses, we caught her, that eliminates the problem of there's not witnesses. Okay, so it makes it harder on Jesus to deal with the situation. We found this woman in adultery in the very act. This isn't just evidentiary, it's not circumstantial, it's in the act. 
Now, in our law, Moses commanded us to stone such. Hey, now, this, the commandment to execute adulterers occurs in Leviticus 20 and in Deuteronomy 22. And in, in Deuteronomy 22, verse 24, it lists out specifically the idea of stoning. Now, one thing I want to remind you is, when we deal with the civil law, the civil law teaches us principles of justice for every nation. The principles of justice include things like, what is a crime versus not? And secondly, it teaches us lawful punishments, including a lawful maximum and lawful minimum, generally. Now, in the case of adultery, execution is a lawful maximum. And the principal person that would be permitted to determine would be the party who had adultery committed against them. So if you had two married people committing adultery, both of their spouses would be considered victims. If you had one married person and an unmarried person committing adultery, the one spouse of the one married party would be considered the victim. And the victim's rights would include determining penalties up to lawful maximums. Now, in the case of Joseph, for example, when he thought that Mary had committed adultery during their engagement, he was going to quietly end the engagement and not bring a civil penalty onto her. He was then, of course, told that she had been given child by a miracle. And so then he knew that it was the case that she was not guilty of any crime. But even before he knew that she was not guilty of a crime, that was his intention. And so that helps to show us, and he's called just in that decision. So it helps to show us, for example, the right of the victim to determine to take less than a maximum penalty. One crime where the Bible makes it explicitly clear that the victim has no right to diminish the penalty is in the case of premeditated murder. In premeditated murder, first of all, the victim is no longer available to be contacted to ask what he might believe would be an appropriate punishment. But secondly, the idea is that premeditated murder needs to be dealt with so severely. So, we look at this crime. A woman who is covenanted and broken covenant is caught in the act. Teacher, we found this woman in adultery in the very act. Now, in our law, Moses commanded us to stone such. But what do you say about her? Now, the reason this is supposed to be a trap is, first of all, Jesus has become known already as a preacher of grace. And so there's a possibility now that if he advocates for the strident application of the law, that people might begin to lose favor with him. They might lose favor toward him. Okay? So if, if you want to gather a crowd and gather supporters, one of the things you can do is you can say, 
Let's eliminate debts. Let's eliminate criminal penalties. And guess who will gather around you? People in debt and people who are criminals or fugitives, right? So that's a great way to run for president in the Democratic Party. Um, and what you can do is gather a crowd that is people who want to be able to use your political power to advance their own station. So one thing is they're trying to, they're trying to remove his, his popular support to some extent and make sure that malcontents don't want to support him. The other thing is, so if he, if he sides with the law, then the malcontents might not support him anymore. The other thing is, if he sides against the Mosaic Law, then it would make it very easy for them to argue that he's a false prophet. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing. Second thing, there's a jurisdictional issue that since Rome had taken control of Judea, they prevented the Sanhedrin from being able to exercise capital punishment themselves. And so the local government of the Jewish people was incapable of administering capital punishment without the approval of the Roman governor. And so, for example, when, when Jesus is arrested and when Jesus is going to be executed by the Sanhedrin, they take him to the praetorium to have the governor, to have Pontius Pilate examine him and to seek to get approval from the governor to execute the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are, there are things there. So if he says, yes, you should execute her, then that would put him at odds with the Roman authority. And so it would gain for the Sanhedrin support from Rome. If he says, no, you shouldn't, then it would lose his popular support again. Okay? So it would make him look like he's not a supporter of the revelation that had come previously. So if he says, yes, then he loses malcontents and he also loses Rome. So the source of power for Jesus is reduced. This is designed to reduce his available sources of power. So that's the way, and then there's also this idea of if he says don't execute her, then he's able to be accused. So he can either be accused to the Romans, here's a man who says to disobey you, or he can be accused to the people, here's a false prophet. That is what the trap is. These are the horns of the dilemma. Jesus is very good at dealing with dilemmas. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. Okay, the general tendency is for commentators to come up with a very clever thing that Jesus was writing and to emphasize that and to speculate on what it was that Jesus wrote. Did Jesus start to write down the names of their mistresses? Oh, snap, right? Did Jesus start to write down the seventh commandment and make them think about it and then have them be convicted by the word of God themselves? Fantastic, right? What? No, we don't, he doesn't, we're not told what he wrote and so we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We don't need to know. If we needed to know it, God would have told us. It would be there in the text. Why is it not in the text? Because it's irrelevant to what is being given to us in his example. What is relevant? Well, I want you to think about this for just a second. 
pretend we are hanging out in a courtyard with dirt on the ground. And I'm teaching people in public. And you set up a trap for me. Very clever, well done. And in setting up this trap for me, you ask me a question that creates a dilemma. And my response is to not acknowledge you and to stoop in the ground and start drawing in the dirt. What does that say I think about you? Is it dismissive? It's dismissive. So this dismissive act is meant to show them disrespect. In showing them disrespect, what he's doing is he's saying, you're not asking this question in any sort of reason that it is lawful. You're not trying to seek to figure out proper due process. You are just trying to test me. You are creating a problem. You're trying to create a problem. You're trying to make a, a problem here. And I don't respect you. And this is an act of disrespect. So it's him showing he doesn't believe they're acting in good faith. So, and maybe in, it says right. So the idea of writing words, I have no problem with that. But I don't think the words are necessary for us to know. Seven. So when they continued asking him, he looked up and said to them. So they get this, looked up. The majority text has looked up. The, the other... Uh, the other texts, the wrong, say he rose up. Okay? Looking up is fantastic. It's even more dismissive. Right? He's continuing to stoop down. They keep going, well, what do you say, Jesus? They're waiting around. Jesus! Come on! Pay attention! Jesus! What's going on? What do you say? And then, he doesn't rise. He just looks up at them. You see how the dismissiveness is maximized here? So he looks up at them. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So first of all, he affirms the law of Moses. And then secondly, he gives instruction about who should throw the first stone. Now, here's the thing. Moses already gave instruction about who should throw the stones. Who did he say? The witnesses. So guess what he just did? Hey, everybody says, Jesus is saying, you know, don't do it. I'm the sinless one. I'm going to throw the first stone. That would have been sin, by the way, if he did. Because guess what? He wasn't a witness. So if he wasn't a witness, he had no right to throw a stone because only the witnesses are the ones that can initiate the stoning process. The idea is that a person who sees a capital crime and bears testimony about the capital crime has to put their hand to the execution process because the blood is on their hands. If you lie to people about a capital crime from somebody else and they get killed, you murdered them. You murdered them with your words and your hand was put to it and the curse of God is on you. So, Jesus is saying, very clever, gentlemen, your concern is, if I tell you to execute this woman, that it will make me an enemy of Rome. You claim to be witnesses. You see why the majority text is so much better? You claim to be witnesses. Great, kill her. And then we will see who Rome cares about. If you execute the penalty, and, they, and you go to them and you say, Hey, Pontius Pilate, Jesus told us to kill this woman against your authority. Oh, did you? Yes. 
Like, like, like who, who did it? Like, we did it. We did it with our own hands. Pontius Pilate's going to forget about Jesus real quick, and he's going to execute them. He has created a dilemma for them. So, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So first of all, the law of Moses requires that it be an eyewitness who first initiates the execution process after a trial. So the assumption here is there was a proper trial in which a verdict was reached on the basis of proper evidence with a court that has lawful authority. Then, the sentencing must be done, and the victim's rights must be dealt with. So if this is the sentencing, where is the victim? Furthermore, if this is a lawful trial, the law of Moses requires that the man and the woman both be executed. It is a common thing in religious circles for people to hold women very accountable for sexual sin and to not hold men accountable for sexual sin. Jesus does not have time for any of that nonsense. He holds men responsible and women responsible. And you know what? There are prophecies in the Old Testament that say, men, if you commit sins, then what's going to happen if you're just in open rebellion against the Lord, your wives will commit whoredoms and not be held responsible, and so will your daughters. A part of the curse that comes upon men for failing to lead is a promiscuity of women. Our culture is dealing with the aftermath right now of the men of America chasing after whoredom, and the result is that promiscuity is widespread not just amongst men now, but amongst women too. So Jesus, the God who brought those prophecies, is also dealing with the fact that they have failed to follow proper due process in the sentencing. And he is also dealing with the fact that the sentencing process, he's not being asked to deal with the sentencing. He's not the court. He is not claiming there to be the civil court. The question is merely a matter of doctrine. And his answer to the matter of doctrine is, yes, the law of Moses applies. Go for it. That's what he does. Isn't that obvious in the text? Everybody tries to make this into the Old Testament doesn't apply. Jesus was under the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't end the Old Testament until he fulfills what his ministry came to accomplish. So then... The idea of he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. He's not saying, okay, here's how people want to interpret that. Nobody can ever punish criminals unless they are sinless. Therefore, we must live in an anarcho state where there are no magistrates who can ever punish crime. Is that what the Lord Jesus Christ was teaching? The same God that gave the covenant to Noah in Genesis 9 to punish murderers, the same God who gives to us Romans 13 about the legitimate authority of the state, the same God that gave to us the Mosaic law, is he saying the qualifications for civil magistracy are sinless perfection. No. 
He is not saying that. What he is saying, and this will be obvious when I say it, what he is saying is, he who has not sinned in this process of law as a witness, throw the first stone. In other words, okay, if you're an honest witness and you saw it, throw the stone. The implication is, if you're lying, curse will be on you and you will have murdered a person. That's what he's saying. And the result is that none of these guys who say they witnessed it, starting with the oldest, have the guts to do what they said. And so something that's meant to be a dilemma for them, for him, turns into a dilemma for them, and they are all put to shame in the temple in front of the Jewish people who Jesus was teaching. And they are made to look like hypocrites. Here's the other irony. Israel has become an adulterous bride of God. And the leadership led them into this adultery. And the temple has been filled with hypocritical worship, a spiritual adultery. And this woman, an adulteress, is brought into the temple by these people who are hypocrites in a hypocritical external worship. And then they don't have the guts to do the thing that they were trying to push Jesus to do. Verse 8. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. Okay. Jesus wasn't left alone as in like the entire crowd. He's left alone as in the ones he's interacting with. The people that were watching are still there. It's still in the temple. It's still a public thing. The temple's huge. The temple's full of people. And this is something that, you know, if you're an observer, you get the popcorn out. You don't leave. And you're, no, nobody was like, this is boring, watching the, the officials of our court interacting with Jesus, trying to call him a hypocrite, and they got the tables turned, and they want to see. Nobody was like, this is boring. I'm going home. This was, they're all still there. But the people who are a part of the opposing group that are trying to shame Jesus, they leave. So Jesus is left alone in terms of the parties of the dispute with the woman standing in the midst, in the midst of the temple and in the midst of the crowd. When Jesus had raised himself up, he saw her and said, Woman, where are those accusers? Has no one condemned you? And none of the witnesses who said they saw you condemn you? Now, they may have actually witnessed this. They may have been telling the truth. They might not have been lying about her, and she might have been pulled out there in that situation. And in fact, they may have even had this be one of the mistresses of one of those people, which is why they knew where she was, so it would be a convenient time to deal with this. And this, they, this I'm not saying that they're lying that she was committing adultery. But, you know, they don't want to kill their homeboy. So, where are those accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. What is she calls him Lord? That's a very small confession of faith. It's a very small confession of faith. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. 
He was not the civil court with jurisdiction to deal with this. He did not hold a trial. There was no proper sentencing process. He is not saying don't punish any civil crimes. He is not saying the law of Moses teaches us nothing about how to deal with crimes or what crimes are or what just penalties are. He is not erasing all of that. He is not eliminating the utility of the civil law. What he's doing is he is saying, if this is the case, you guys have the responsibility to execute her, deal with that. And they cowered out, and he gives to her forgiveness as a church officer based upon the idea that she is repenting by saying, Lord. And what he is doing is he is telling her to not sin any further. And so he seems to be, not by necessary implication, but by what we would generally understand if we were the hearers, seems to be affirming her guilt. And so his statement that he does not condemn her, he will not condemn her as a civil court, he will not bring the civil penalty, and he is extending forgiveness and showing that there is forgiveness in the sight of God available to those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what crimes or sins have been committed. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause there because this might be a thing where there's significant questions. And I'm going to ask for comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. <laughs>